Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. And in this week's podcast, I'll be talking to Professor Francis Fukuyama of Stanford University about whether democracies or authoritarian governments are proving better at dealing with the coronavirus. Has China shown that it's better able to deal with a pandemic than the United States? And is America suffering from a crisis of trust in government? Back in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. For those of us who'd grown up in the Cold War, it was immediately apparent that an era of world history had come to a close and something new was beginning. Just a few months earlier, Francis Fukuyama, then a diplomat, had published an academic essay which predicted the collapse of communism and argued that liberal democracy was poised to triumph and spread around the world. Fukuyama's essay was, of course, called The End of History, and its brilliant timing ensured that Fukuyama looked extraordinarily prescient. He became a global intellectual celebrity, and he's since written books on a wide variety of subjects, including trust, political order, and most recently, identity politics. The price of his early fame, however, has been that ever since, Professor Fukuyama's had to put up with people saying, aha, but history didn't end, did it? That argument's always seemed to me to rest on a misunderstanding of what he was actually saying. Fukuyama wasn't saying that events would come to a full stop, that there would be no more war or political turbulence. He was arguing instead that ideological competition was over and that democracy had won. And for 20 years, that looked like a pretty accurate description of how the world was going. Our friends, comrades, and fellow South Africans, I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for all. In 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from prison in South Africa, which led to the end of apartheid and its replacement by a democratic system. In 1991, the Soviet Union itself collapsed. In 1998, Indonesia, the world's fourth most populous country, also became a democracy after the fall of its strongman ruler, Suharto. Today, however, the strongman style of politics is back in fashion, even in established democracies such as the United States. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. The authority is total. total. It's total. Since the financial crisis of 2008, there's been what's often called a democratic recession. The number of democracies which had risen steadily since 1989 has begun to fall again. And that brings us to the impact of the coronavirus. This pandemic may have started in China, but it's also been suppressed there faster than in the West. And that's allowed China's one-party state to argue that it's better at mobilizing against a killer disease than Western democracies. 
which raises again the problem that Fukuyama was writing about back in 1989, the contest between liberal democracy and authoritarian systems. So when I spoke to Francis Fukuyama on the line from California, I asked him if he believed that authoritarian governments are indeed doing better in coping with the coronavirus. I think if you look across the world, there's really no correlation between performance in this crisis and whether you're a democracy or an authoritarian government. In fact, you see a lot of variance on both sides. And so some democracies like South Korea, Germany, look to have done quite well. Others, like the United States, Italy, Spain, have not done so well. And similarly, among authoritarian powers, I wouldn't give China as much credit as they're taking for themselves because I think their system really allowed this virus to get out in the first place. And to this day, it's not clear whether they're being honest about reporting, but they have gotten it under control. Singapore, you know, other authoritarian states have done well, but some have been big disasters like Turkmenistan, where you're not even allowed to use the word COVID or coronavirus. So I think the regime type is not the significant factor that distinguishes how well you're doing. And you, I think, have highlighted something else, which you've actually written books about, which is trust. What do you mean by that? And why is it significant? Well, I think that there has to be a basic degree of social trust between citizens and their governments for a number of obvious reasons. Now, that trust is built on several things. You have to believe your government knows what it's doing. It has the right capacity. It has the doctors, the health professionals, that they're making good judgments, that the first responders are capable. All of these things are a component of trust. But then the more elusive thing is whether you actually think the leaders of your government know what they're doing, that they're actually taking public interest into consideration and not just their short-term political interests. And so if both of those are in place, I think you're going to get a lot of compliance with difficult rules. And if they're not, then you're in big trouble. And do you think that there's a distinction to be made between authoritarian and democratic governments in terms of being able to command trust? Or do you think in the right circumstances, either is capable of doing it? Well, I think that Either is capable, although I think that in general, the number of authoritarian governments that are strongly trusted by their citizens tends to be pretty low compared to democracies. I mean, that's why we prefer democracy, because it does rest on consent of the governed, and authoritarian countries obviously lack that. But, you know, a place like Singapore, and I would say China to a, a great extent, both of those places have citizens who think the government knows what it's doing and are willing to comply with its rules. And you've written, though, that America currently is suffering from a crisis of trust. Why do you make that diagnosis and why is it significant in this coronavirus context? I think that the United States has been suffering from a big crisis of polarization. This is not something that began with Donald Trump. Uh, it has deep roots that go back 20 years or so. But I think that the country is divided into red states and blue states or red citizens and blue citizens who just see the world differently. They interpret facts and indeed the facts that they believe are different. And so I would say that, you know, for example, our president is highly trusted by his core supporters, maybe the 35, 40% of the country that's really rallied behind him. But on the other hand, the other half of the country completely distrusts almost anything that comes out of his mouth. And 
I think that that makes a unified political response extremely difficult because it really has politicized all of these decisions that really ought to be made on more objective grounds. But is there any sign, for example, that people are reluctant to obey with lockdown rules because of what Trump said or the opposite, that they were too lax for too long? Oh, I think there's plenty of evidence of that. For example, in a lot of red states and among conservative commentators, there's been this high degree of skepticism that we're even in a crisis. And to this day, you know, you'll find some of them saying, well, this is no worse than the flu. This is just a conspiracy that uh, has been hatched to weaken Trump and this sort of thing. So in that respect, yeah, I think to a great degree, the larger political polarization has affected the way that people respond to the crisis and whether they're willing to comply with orders. Many red state governors have been very reluctant to enforce quarantine or shutdown orders because of, I think, this politicization. And indeed, I mean, the suspicion of experts, I was just looking at ultra-right commentators saying that Anthony Fauci, who's become the voice of science, if you like, in the US and standing beside the president, but that he should be charged, that he's committed a crime for stirring up undue alarm. Is this a sort of wider crisis of trust, not just in politicians or in the political system, but in the very idea of expertise? I think so. I think that we're in the midst of a global populist uprising in many countries where the existing elites are under suspicion by ordinary people that they don't have everyone's best interests at heart. And I think you're now seeing this come out with regard to all of these public health specialists that have been giving advice on what the appropriate response would be. Now, I should just say, I don't know that actually these health experts are in the best position to make certain difficult trade-offs between, you know, the economic consequences of the shutdown and their concern with maximizing public health. That's a political decision that will have to be made by other people. But I think what you're getting is a kind of almost irrational response that anything that comes out of the mouth of one of these experts is ipso facto suspect. Yeah. And I mean, you were associated early in your career with the end of history thesis, which was seen as a kind of peon to the triumph of democracy. But then later, you've written about how democracies can decay in your book, Political Order and Political Decay. Do you think the US is a decaying democracy in the terms you've written about? I think that American democracy has been decaying for the past generation. I measure that in a couple of ways. One just has to do with the rigidity of the system. We've got this very complex constitutional system that has worked very well in certain periods, but I think has been a big problem. So, for example, the electoral college by which we choose presidents and the way that states are apportioned representation is highly unequal right now. The Republicans have managed to win majorities in the presidency based on minority votes in the general population. But we can't fix this because this is deeply embedded in a very old constitution. And I think that the other really big issue is the capture of the government by powerful interest groups over the last several decades where the government really responds to the needs of well-organized lobbies much more than to general citizens. And in both of those respects, this is a crisis of decay that pre-existed Trump by quite a few years. And what does your study of history and the history of political orders suggest to you? I mean, are countries that fall into this cycle of decay capable of snapping out of it? 
Well, I think that the short answer is yes. I mean, even in American history, we had an even deeper crisis of polarization prior to the Civil War. It was solved by a very bloody conflict, but it was eventually solved. And there are other periods, like in the late 19th century, where you actually did get out of this kind of a situation. Oftentimes, however, it requires a big external shock. The financial crisis in 2008 wasn't a big enough shock to really right the system. It's possible that this pandemic could be the moment where people will say, yeah, the system is not really working very well. But we don't know that, and we'll just have to wait and see. And do you see this problem of political decay in democracies as a problem that is manifest across a number of democratic countries, or is it just the United States? Well, I think you have to take a broader perspective. So certainly the mainstream political parties throughout Europe have been in a big crisis over the last few years with the rise of populism because a lot of the center-left and center-right parties seem to be out of touch and challenged by these upstarts. But, you know, the question is, is there a better system that would guarantee faster responses to these fundamental challenges? And I'm not sure I see that because one of the big problems in authoritarian countries is that there's no mechanism of accountability by which citizens can throw out a government and replace it with something completely different. And so you're seeing in one authoritarian country after another, essentially dictators who are extending their terms in office, you know, Vladimir Putin, who is trying to do this in Russia, Xi Jinping did this in China, and then, you know, across Africa, Middle East, this is a very, very common phenomenon. And so really in that kind of a system, the likelihood that you're going to get a political stasis that goes on for decades. You know, you look at Castro's Cuba or any number of other authoritarian countries, I think that risk is much greater than in a democracy where at least you can vote and you can throw the bums out and get a new crowd in. And yet, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that there's a sort of blurring in political styles between democracies and some of these authoritarian countries that you mentioned, particularly in the case of Trump, who's quite frank in his admiration for Putin, for Xi Jinping, and who at least rhetorically uses some of the same devices and ways of associating with the public? Well, I think that in many cases, authoritarian leaders are not born authoritarian somehow. I think that, you know, they want to stay in power and then they start realizing that it's all the checks and balances in their system that is keeping them from staying in power. And so they begin to attack those checks and balances. And it doesn't happen through a military coup. It happens very gradually. But I think that that's the pattern that is playing itself out in many parts of the world right now. I don't think that Donald Trump gets up in the morning and says, I wish I were Xi Jinping or Sisi of Egypt. Let me see how I can take control all by myself. He thinks to himself, well, there are all of these pesky journalists and courts and bureaucracies that are getting in my way. And let me see how I could weaken them. But I think that's the way today that democracy dies. It's by a thousand small cuts rather than a dramatic gesture. We were talking earlier about populism and nationalism. Where do you see that coming from? I mean, I've seen some of Trump's supporters, for example, Steve Bannon, tracing it back to the financial crisis, the mishandling of it, a kind of economic explanation for it. Your most recent book was about identity politics and the rise of that. I mean, how do you strike the balance in trying to understand what's going on? Well, I wouldn't deny the economic drivers of populism. I think that globalization 
over the past generation has produced tremendous inequalities and it's really negatively impacted the lives of a lot of working class people. So if you want to explain the timing for this upsurge, I think it is a kind of delayed reaction to globalization. But I do think that there's an important identity component. And by identity, I mean the belief that you are a member of a certain kind of community deep down that isn't being respected and that your political agenda is then built around getting respect for that particular identity. And that explains, I think, a lot of the weird things that are going on in the politics of the United States and other countries where working class voters will vote against their economic self-interest because of this identity affiliation. So, for example, many Trump supporters are completely dependent on Obamacare for health insurance, and yet they vote for Republican politicians that have vowed to abolish Obamacare because of this identity issue. And I think today in the COVID crisis, you're seeing something very similar where people will go to restaurants in a red state because that's a mark of their identity, that they want to show the liberal elites that they are not intimidated by Anthony Fauci and all of these experts. So that's, I think, the way that the current political crisis is playing out. It's driven both by economic concerns, but also by these essentially cultural considerations. And those are to do with, what, the balance of power within the society? Well, and it's based on... I think these other feelings, you know, a lot of it in many countries has an ethnic or a racial component, which is why immigration has been such a big issue for many populists. This feeling that we used to have this nice, tightly bound community, but now we have to take in all of these other people that are either undermining our welfare state or changing our culture in ways that we don't approve of. And so I think that that, you know, becomes a further important driver of this phenomenon. Right. And just to wind up then, looking at the the moment we're in now, this pandemic, it's obviously too early to say, but let's speculate. Do you think this is shaping up to be a major turning point in history, like a Great Depression or indeed the fall of the Berlin Wall or, you know, other pandemics in history? We're now all thinking about the Spanish flu of 1918-19, but it's not something that I was brought up to regard as a major turning point. So maybe the pandemic this time won't be. How does it feel to you? I suspect that this is going to be a pretty major turning point. The problem is I think it's very hard to predict exactly what's going to happen. If you think about the financial crisis in 2008, the real effects of it, we didn't see until the rise of Trump and populism around the world. So it was quite a few years until these things played out. And I suspect that this is going to be something similar. I don't anticipate that there'll be a moment where everybody will announce, okay, the pandemic's over, you're free to go back to your lives as they were before January 2020. I think it's going to be prolonged, and I think it's going to change the way we interact socially. And it's very hard to imagine that that's not going to have very deep and profound impacts on the way that societies operate and on our politics. But It could be for the good because it'll be a wake-up call to change institutions to make us more resilient, or it could be very bad. It'll deepen the kind of xenophobia, nationalism, hostility, conspiracy theories that we've seen in recent years. Well, that's a slightly gloomy note to end on. So let me finish with a slightly (laughs) more optimistic thing, if only anecdotal. I think along with a lot of people, I noticed this photo that emerged in the early stages of the pandemic in Wuhan 
of a uh, Chinese student convalescing reading your book on uh, political order. And then he was later, I seen released from hospital. I saw him brandishing an autographed copy. How did you hear about that? How did you get a copy to him? Well, yeah, apparently that photograph of him was very popular on Chinese social media. So a lot of Chinese friends of mine began telling me that he had been reading my book. And one of them, who is a professor in China, said she could get him a personal copy of the English version of the book. So I sent it to her and I signed it and she gave it to him. And he had been apparently a student in an American university previously, and he was extremely happy to get it. So I'm really pleased the way that worked out. Yeah, no, Lisa, nice to have one kind of positive story out of it. So for now, thank (laughs) you very much to Professor Francis Fukuyama in California. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Gideon. That was Francis Fukuyama in Stanford, ending this week's edition of the Rachman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash survey. You might also like to subscribe to our business newsletter on the coronavirus, which is a daily briefing on how the epidemic's affecting the markets, global business, our workplaces and daily lives. Visit ft.com to sign up. And please join us again next week. Just follow the link at ft.com slash review or you can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.